Pacific Sunday last week uh, for Easter. And it's hard to get a picture when you're only at one service and you don't know what's going on altogether, you know, amongst our three services. But we had um, about 75% of our pre-COVID attendance, uh, not Easter attendance, regular attendance. Uh, we had about 80 people here at Lawson Road. And uh, we were 100, 110 before COVID hit. So we were, uh, we had a lot of people out last week and uh, the weather was, was good. So uh, just really, really grateful for that and appreciate you coming back this morning. And uh, I know it, it still feels like it's 8.30, there's lots of space, um, but we wouldn't fit in one room at the moment. So uh, that's, a, that's a great thing. Um, with, with the spacing that we, we require. We're, we're over that limit. And so uh, uh, it, is, it is a great problem to have. And, um, you know, we keep talking about ways that we can get everyone back together. But uh, if you've been following the, the figures and seeing the increase in cases and everything in the county at the moment, it's just not the time for us to be backing off in our precautions uh, here just yet. But we are definitely talking about it, planning for it, and, and looking towards that day. I want to uh, just uh, share with you something uh, that I came across yesterday, and that is that uh, uh, about the Westerholm family, our missions that we support in Mozambique. You may remember that last year we uh, showed a video of uh, trucks carrying refugees, really, from uh, a conflict coming down through the city, town where they're based. And uh, as a consequence of that, we actually gave them uh, several thousand dollars at uh, Christmas, around Christmas time, uh, to help them as they care and support for those that are being displaced. Uh, the update that I've been able to, to get this week is that that conflict has really uh, increased. It is not getting less. It, it's getting worse. And it's not. They are in the north of the country, a fair way inland but the conflict is in the north of the country. So uh, they are not too far away from that. And so uh, we want to continue to pray uh, for their safety and for their ministry. You know, that uh, a lot of work that, that they've invested, years they've invested in God's kingdom there, uh, could be seriously disrupted uh, through, through that conflict. And it is a it, I don't want to make it into like Christians versus Muslims, but it just happens that those rebels or whatever are, uh, I think, associated with like ISIS and uh, looking to expand their territory. So if you would, would you just uh, pray with me uh, for, for that family and, and their work? Father God, we, we are thankful that we are able to be here this morning and uh, in, in a building, and our, our biggest worry right now is whether we're six feet away from each other. And uh, uh, But... but we're not that concerned about our overall safety. And, and Lord, we lift up to you uh, uh, the Westerholm family, the work that they are doing in Mozambique and have done for, for so long. And we just uh, ask that you protect them physically, that, that they be safe, and, and the church and the Christians that they're working with there, that they be safe in the midst of what is a, uh, a time of conflict and um, instability. And we just uh, pray that for the country that you be able to res uh, bring peace, that um, people be able to live their lives without fear. Uh, we, we pray for 
the ministry, the spread of your word, the spread of your kingdom, Lord, that it not be uh, held up by this, that, that your borders of your kingdom will continue to expand in, in that region of Mozambique and, and Africa enlarged. Father, we are so grateful for those that are willing to serve you in that capacity, and uh, we just pray that we be encouraged to uh, serve you also uh, wherever our lives take us. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. The first great threats to the church in the book of Acts didn't come from persecution. It's not to diminish persecution. We're just talking about that in Mozambique, right? In a very real setting, a real environment, set of circumstances. But, but in, in the book of Acts, the first and the greatest threat to the church did not come from persecution. The first four chapters of Acts, as we've talked about quite a bit, show this steady growth, even rapid growth, exponential growth in the, the very beginning. Sure, the, the temple authorities express concern at the teachings, but their efforts to squash it are half-hearted at best. They take a couple of the leaders, they throw them in jail, they tell them very sternly to stop speaking. The leaders, the apostles say, we're not going to stop speaking. They say, okay, off you go. And then when they keep speaking, they throw them in jail again. God releases them. It, it, it's, it's sort of more of a hindrance than an authoritarian uh, persecution. And so this is the beginning of the church as it, it grows in those first four chapters or so. In chapter 5, uh, a few weeks ago, as we're working our way through the book of Acts, we encounter the uh, first real crisis for the church. In the midst of a movement of compassion and generosity, one couple, Ananias and Sapphira, in an apparent move to improve their social reputation and to uh, give an appearance of generosity while at the same time keeping money for themselves, um, they, they lie about their generosity to God. And they choose money and fame, fame and fortune, if you will, over honesty and love for others. In chapter 6, so that's the, the first crisis, Okay. How is the church going to respond? And, and God responds to that deception in very uncertain terms. He, he uh, no uncertain terms, right? Very, very clear terms. He says, you can't lie to the Holy Spirit. Okay? We're not going to have that sort of culture here. Okay? You can't just be deceptive. The church is not going to be treated as a tool for your social advancement. It's got a bigger mission, a bigger purpose. And then in chapter 6, we see this, uh, the, the next crisis. And, and this crisis is to do with cultural demographics. I think if we were to translate it to our society, we would call it uh, systemic racism. Okay? It, it's not quite that because everyone's Jewish, but we have this group of Hellenistic Jews and a group of Hebraic Jews, 
And nobody, I don't think, has set out to be mean or cruel to each other. But the system is broken. And, and the, the system needs to be fixed. And, but there's this real risk of the church disintegrating, the church dividing into a Hebraic-speaking Jewish church and a Greek-speaking cultural Jewish church. And again, the Holy Spirit works, uh, gives the, the apostles the wisdom they need to be able to resolve this as they appoint seven men. Uh, we'll call them deacons because they kind of function in, that, in the way that we picture deacons working. And because of the wisdom that the apostles demonstrate and the, the ability of these men to carry out their roles of distributing the food equitably, disaster and division is avoided in the early church. But both of those threats, the threat to um, do away with a culture of compassion and generosity instead of selfishness and accumulating wealth, and the threat of dividing into groups of, uh, based on demographics and the animosity that could be built up around that. Both of those threats didn't come from persecution. They came from within the church. And so now we pick up the story in chapter 8. In verse 3 of chapter 8, paints this terrifying picture. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. He took the leaders, the leaders in the church, the ones that were most influential. He took the men, he took the women, uh, and, and he threw them in jail. And he said, if I cut off the head of the dragon, then the dragon will die. And you can imagine at that time what that was like, the uncertainty the instability that that church experienced. But Luke immediately points out in verse 4 that persecution couldn't destroy the church. He says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And so a couple of images come to mind to me with that verse 4. The first is of the parable that, that Jesus told of the sower who scattered the seed in the field. It's the, the seed is the word of God being scattered into the world. And, and so what we see really, I think, here is, is a, a complacency. The church has become comfortable there in Jerusalem. And, and now, it's only now as they're scattered that the kingdom of God expands. But, but thankfully, they, it does expand. And wherever they go, they take the good news of Jesus with them. It also likewise reminds me of a, a grease fire, okay? That, that Saul has this grease fire in his kitchen, okay? Christians in the temple are the grease fire in the kitchen. And he throws water on it. And the grease splashes everywhere, right? And, and, and it starts new fires. And, and it gets bigger and it gets worse uh, despite all of his efforts. Of course, it doesn't make it any more enjoyable or pleasant or less terrifying for those directly uh, assaulted by, by Saul. And so Luke, at this point in the book of Acts, shifts his storytelling. 
So far, he has focused on the apostles, and he's focused on Jerusalem. But now, he makes a a move, a transition. In chapter 7, having introduced the the deacons in in chapter 6, he tells the story of the deacon Stephen in chapter 7, and ultimately of Stephen's death for the kingdom of Christ. And then in chapter 8, we move from to another deacon, and that is Philip. And we, we have the story of, of Philip, but it also moves us out of Jerusalem. And so we, we have this transition that's taking place as the um, book continues as the mission of God expands. I think it's important here that we be, get a good view of what these servants were in chapter uh, who were distributing the food. And I, I've mentioned them, I've called them deacons. And I think that somehow we often paint a picture of, of deacons um, as the odd job guys around the church. And and so if you need, then they're, not the, they're not the elders or the apostles, they're not the great spiritual leaders, but they're the get-a-done kind of guys, okay? They were to get the dis- distribution of food done. But I think that sells them a little short, and, and the expectations for what godly men of any role in the church uh, should be aiming for. Because remember, these are are men that are given that particular task not because of their expertise in food or logistics. They're given this task because they're full of the Holy Spirit and full of the wisdom that comes with the Holy Spirit. And then we see Stephen, who is someone who is boldly proclaiming the faith. Okay, And and sometimes maybe we want to narrow put people into boxes and define roles. And we say, oh, he's doing the work of an evangelist. It's like, no, he's just being a Christian. Okay, but, and, and we should expect nothing less from somebody who's been given a position of, of leadership, a role and a responsibility in the church, who's the church has prayed over, who has set him aside as recognizing him as a godly leader, as someone filled with the Holy Spirit. And... And then we come to to Philip and we get the same thing as somebody who is not just, oh, for the rest, for the next 10 years, I'm going to be distributing food to to widows, which is a very worthy role, but he doesn't limit himself to that. When the church is scattered, he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to take the the word of God, the, the message of the good news with me wherever I go. And he also carries out this effective ministry. And so we see these deacons as no less than anyone else in the church, godly men, filled with the Spirit, committed to sharing the good news of Jesus and ministry partners with the apostles. And so as the story moves from Jerusalem to Samaria, there's a couple of things that we need to know about Samaria. This is not just taking a trip from New York to Pennsylvania. There's a, uh, 
a lot of animosity that exists between these two people groups. You probably know the story um, of how the Samaritans are an ambiguous group of people. That their, their, their role, their connection to the Jews and to Israel is unclear. The northern kingdom had been taken into captivity, and those who were taken into captivity never came back. But there were still Jews living in the land. Okay? Northern Jews living there. But then the Assyrians not only took many of the, the Jews away from the north and resettled them, they brought people from other places and settled them in Samaria. And, and so in Samaria, the, you have these Jews that were left behind, probably the less educated, less skilled, uh, poorer Jews, certainly poorer now that their country has been destroyed. And you have these other refugees brought in from other parts in the, of the Assyrian Empire. Naturally, there's marriage and takes place, and over time, it's like, who are we? They have this identity crisis. By the time of Jesus, they are kind of running a, a shadow version of Judaism. They, they, they're not welcome in the temple, and so they establish their own temple uh, on Mount Gerizim. They have their own priests, their own sort of religion. They, they observe the Bible, but only the five books of the Pentateuch, not the, the prophets. And so they're, they're kind of Judaism light. Judaism, not quite right. Uh, they're Jewish, not quite. You know? and, and so they're never called Gentiles. They're never called Gentiles. Um, which I think is, is really important for us. And so Luke, in his writing, in the Gospel of Luke, he has already, um, in a sense, built a bridge to the Samaritans because he, he included in his Gospel the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and so the other, I mean, it was Jesus who told the story. But Matthew, Mark, and John didn't include it in their gospel. Luke did. And, and so Luke includes this story that makes a Samaritan the hero. And in that sense, he builds a bridge between Jesus and the Samaritans. At the same time, the power, the effectiveness of that story totally depends on the animosity that exists between the two groups. The shock value of the story is that somebody that is a dreaded, terrible Samaritan that we won't have anything to do with could actually find some goodness in their soul to do something kind. And, uh, so we, we see the animosity there, but Jesus says, no, look, there's goodness in the Samaritan. The second thing to, to note about the Samaritans is that in Acts 1, okay? Do you remember Jesus' instruction? You should know it by now, that, that Jesus tells the apostles to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the world, right? So Jesus has told them to go to Samaria. Again, Jesus is building those, those bridges, um, and the question is, is the church, uh, this is the, which is a Jewish church, going 
to walk over those bridges. So, as I said, many Jews would have liked to completely disown the Samaritan, have nothing to do with him. They were, in the, in the eyes of the temple, or the, the Pharisees at least, uh, they were probably idolaters. Jesus seems to indicate that they worship the same God. Because when he sits down with a Samaritan woman, he doesn't accuse her of being an idolater. She says, where should we worship God? He says, well, you're not even worshiping God. No. He says, well, you worship there, we worship here. But this, there's going to be a time where we all worship in spirit and truth. And, and so we might expect, if, if Jesus had the same attitude towards the Samaritans that the religious institution of Israel had at the time, he would have had a lot to correct her about, but he doesn't. And so they are, I, I believe, they're treated as Jews, as children of Israel, albeit children of Israel who are on the periphery. Like, are they really children of Israel? There's a suspicion there. And God seems to say yes, and the people seem to say we're not sure about this. And I think we have people in our society that we might think about in the same way. Are they really Americans? Are they really good? Are they really Christians? And we're not sure how to treat them and how to interact with them and what to do with them. And so we spend our time with those that we're more comfortable and more confident about. And so as the gospel leaves the church building, so to speak, as it leaves Jerusalem, it still doesn't go to the major power centers of the world. It goes to these places on the periphery of good society, those who are barely Jews. And so Philip heads to an uncertain reception as he heads to Samaria. In verses 4 through 8 that was read for us earlier, we, we see that Philip has received his message of Jesus is, is, is received overwhelmingly positive. You see, the Samaritans were also looking for a Messiah-type figure, a great prophet. And, and so as Philip comes and tells them of Jesus as he backs up his message with these miracles of casting out demons, of healing the sick, then there's great joy in that city, we're told in verse 8. Doesn't that make sense that if you have good news and you tell other people about it, that it's going to lead to great joy? Uh, that, that's what we're, we're shooting for. And then as we, we come down, though, we come to verse 9. And here we run into our third at least as it's presented in the book of Acts, our third crisis for the church. We're introduced to Simon. And Simon is described as a powerful man who practiced sorcery and had many followers of his own. He boasted that he was someone great 
All the people, both high and low, gave him their attention, exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. Pretty good name, right? Like, how would you feel if that was on your business card? I am Peter, the great power of God. Okay, I wouldn't do that. But um, they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. And so it seems like Simon is presented as this outside threat. The the story is setting up for the showdown between Philip and Simon, between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, that you're waiting for the fire to come down from heaven to consume Simon, to demonstrate that God is all-powerful, that God is supreme, and that everyone should listen to him. Instead, as Philip proclaims the good news of Jesus and the kingdom of God, as people are baptized, Simon says, hey, I've seen what you do. I also want to be baptized. Because you're, we're told after that, after his baptism, he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. And it's interesting that while all the rest of the Samaritans are told that they heard the message of the good news of the kingdom of God and of Jesus Christ and that they believe and are baptized, we're just told for Simon that he believed and that he follows Philip amazed at the miracles. And it seems that his focus is on the power that he sees Philip exercise. But he becomes, I mean, he is sitting on the front pew every time Philip gets up to preach. He is at every church meeting. Every time the doors open, Simon is there. He is on board for this ride, wherever it takes him. And so when, when Philip and John were kind of jumping ahead now, if you were trying to track along in your Bibles uh, in verse 14, where, where Philip, Peter and John come down from Jerusalem or come up from Jerusalem to see Samaria, to see what's going on, to see what God is doing. And, and they lay hands on the Samaritans. It's like there's this Samaritan day of Pentecost, that the Samaritans have believed and been baptized, and they're just waiting for the Holy Spirit, a lot like the apostles and the disciples were waiting in the upper room for the Holy Spirit to come on them. And when Peter and, and, and John arrive, they're certainly not like, they're not controlling the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit works through them. And, and as they lay hands on the believers and pray for them, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, the, the Samaritan Christians. And it's interesting that Simon apparently was not one of those who had hands laid on him. That the Holy Spirit did not come on him because he was an observer of this. And he sees it happening and whatever it looked like, he said, that is amazing, that is incredible, that is greater than anything I've ever seen or done myself. I want that power. And so in verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostle's hand, he offered the money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. You see, he didn't want the Holy Spirit. He wanted the power to distribute the Holy Spirit. And perhaps the wealth that could come if he was able to control that power. And so we come to the third crisis that the church faces. 
And again, it comes from inside the church. Look at Peter's answer in verse 20. Peter answered, may your money perish with you. I think literally there the word is, may it go to hell with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to you. And we're never told if Simon repented. And so here's the threat to the church. That Simon wants to use his wealth to gain power within the church. Just like Ananias and Sapphira wanted to use their wealth to gain prestige, Simon wants to use his wealth to gain power in the church and the community. And it's interesting, I think, that all three of these threats actually show up in this story. There's the racial enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's interesting that John was the apostle that went with Peter to Samaria. Because John had also been the apostle who, when a Samaritan village had said, no, we're not going to accommodate Jesus, that John said, Jesus, why don't we just burn them up? Why don't we call down fire from heaven and that village, that whole village, just be destroyed and burned? Like he didn't value Samaritan lives. They didn't matter. And so it's this same apostle that is now going to Samaria that is seeing what God is doing in Samaria, that is laying hands and giving the same Holy Spirit to these Samaritans and welcoming them into the kingdom of God. And so we have that threat to the church that is... on display here because he could easily have backed off he could easily have gone down and said no Philip stop what you're doing why are you doing this they are apostate Jews they're not Jews like they don't deserve like he could have gone down that road couldn't he and perhaps in an earlier part of his life he would have and then there's again the misuse of money and the quest So think of those three threats, money, power, and prejudice. And and so it's a, a very inflammatory situation. And they all come, this is what I, I think is important, they all come from within the church. Because we know the persecution's going on, right? We just remember, started that way. The soul is just seeking to destroy the church. Instead, these threats come from those who've been welcomed into the church. What's the answer? Should the church not welcome people? That would undermine the purpose of the church, wouldn't it? I believe the answer is the Holy Spirit. And so I want to, to land the message here today that I think that we face a similar scattering to this church in, in the book of Acts. We've scattered for a year. We, we, we scattered. We left the building. And we're still that way to a certain extent. And it's so easy to view that very negatively. Can you imagine what this church in Jerusalem was saying to each other? <gasps> Those times in the temple, the singing, the preaching from the apostles, the 
meals around the table. Oh, it was the best of days. I can't wait till we can do that again. Like, do you remember when? Maybe next year. Maybe next year they'll let us back in. But, but instead, they had to change their perspective and see the scattering, not as a scattering carried out by Saul, but as a sending prompted by God. And, and as they went, they encountered opportunities to share the good news. And I believe that in our society today that there are people who are longing for good news, who are longing for a place to belong, who are looking for opportunities to get involved, to, to, to discover a purpose and a meaning to life that is greater than they have been experiencing. And perhaps right now there are more people open to the gospel and to the church than there have been for many years. And also like the first church, I don't believe our greatest threats come from outside. You see, it's easy to look at media headlines and look at court cases and, and look at um, moral behaviors and, and, and laws that are made and we don't agree with them and we don't like them and we say this is going to destroy and persecute and oppress the church. And we get all upset and we spend our energy fighting those things and instead, I believe, Acts says, well, all that was going on but the greatest threat was inside. Notice what Peter says. He says to, to uh, Simon, he says, repent of the wickedness. And that, that's the thing that he did, the offer to buy it. But he says, pray to the Lord in the hope of forgiveness that you have a thought in your heart. For I see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. You see, it's what's going on in the heart. Is the prejudice, is the, the quest for power, is the, the search for wealth and the accumulation of, of wealth and prestige, those things, if we have a church of people that are pursuing those things, will destroy the church far more quickly and completely than any outside pressure. And so I think Simon was no different from many people we encounter in our daily lives, both within and outside the church. We're frequently told that money talks, and often it talks within the church. The truth is that even in the church, money can still buy power. Not the Holy Spirit's power, but nonetheless, power. And so I think in order to avoid these threats that the church faced in Jerusalem, in Acts, and that we face today, we need to maintain our focus on the mission of God. And we also need to Maintain a focus on the Holy Spirit because in this story it is the Holy Spirit who breaks down the barrier of prejudice. It's the Holy Spirit that, that even though is not given until the laying on of hands, but clearly demonstrates that the Samaritans belong, not on the periphery of the church, but at the heart of the church. It's the first of the new frontier. It is the Holy Spirit that says, no, you can't buy me. Money does not buy you position with God. And it's the Holy Spirit that says, God is the ultimate power. Anything that you seek to accumulate here on this earth is going to be completely secondary and you need to keep it secondary. Because yes, we still need leaders and influencers in our church and in our society, but the power belongs to God. And I think it's here 
that we ground ourselves. And we say a healthy church is going to consist of healthy, spiritually healthy individuals focused on the spirit and focused upon the mission and ministry of God. I liked a reading from Psalm 133 earlier. How beautiful is the unity that's described there. We may not use the same metaphors of oil running down a beard. It's a little strange, of dew on the grass in Hermon or in Jerusalem. But we grasp the concept that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of unity. And that outside pressure doesn't take that away. Whether we're scattered, sent, or all in one place, we still are united by the Spirit of God. I'll leave that with you.